Evening, folks. How are you going tonight? Good, good. It's good to have you here. Uh, we're in our second last sermon of, uh, of 1 Samuel, and uh, tonight I've been tasked with uh, covering chapters 27, 28, and 29. I'm not even going to touch 27 and 29, though, so uh, let me encourage you, if you haven't read them during the week, hopefully you have, but it'd be a great thing for you to do to read either side of this uh, chapter that we're focusing on tonight. Uh, whilst I'm on the topic, it would be a great practice for you guys to be in, uh, to be reading the Bible passages for the coming week that we're going to be preaching here at church. Uh, it really helps us to, to be ready to hear what God is saying. So uh, let me throw that one out to you. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a think about this uh, pretty interesting uh, passage of the Bible. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, you have written everything in this book for our good for our instruction and for our encouragement. And so as we come to this uh, quite confusing and uh, quite strange and quite confronting passage of your word tonight, uh, please would you instruct us and encourage us and guide us as we read it. And pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, uh, George Columbaris, you might know the name. Uh, this is George Columbaris. He's been in the news a little bit this week. He's a celebrity chef. Perhaps you've seen him on MasterChef. He's been plastered all over your TV for the last 10 years or so, giving his endorsement to any product he can get his hands on. Uh, busy running lots of restaurants as well, as it turns out. Uh, George Columbaris and his company own and run dozens of restaurants, mainly down in Victoria, hundreds of employees. And just this last week, scandal has broken uh, because it's been revealed that after a four-year investigation by the Fair Work Ombudsman, uh, Colin Byrus has been found to have been underpaying his employees, over 500 of whom, uh, to the tune of about $8 million. Uh, he's been doing some pretty dodgy stuff. And Colin Byrus has been shamed for doing this, uh, and he's been slapped with a personal fine as well of about $200,000, uh, and it's been called a contrition payment. Uh, that is a payment that he ought to make to make himself contrite. I assume that's kind of what that's talking about. Uh, media has kind of gone to task on Columbaris this week, calling it a fall from grace. This guy who was held in pretty high esteem, pretty popular in public, and now his reputation is being dragged through the mud. His life is starting to crumble around him this week. It's been a bad week for him. Uh, I reckon, though, whether it's a celebrity chef who's been underpaying his employees or a national sporting hero who has been caught cheating, or a politician who has been found out to be using their credit card for something that they shouldn't be. Uh, regardless, there's one thing that I think is true in Australian life, and it's that we love the story of someone's fall from grace. It's kind of like a national sport for us, watching celebrities, watching public people uh, descend from the heights that they were living at down to the level of the rest of us, right? We, we kind of lavish this stuff. It's in our news every single week. And I don't really know why that is. I've been thinking about that this week. And I suspect partly it's because of that kind of Australian tall poppy syndrome, uh, that desire that we have to, to knock those high flyers down a rung or two, uh, that you know, something in us kind of feels gratification when we see things like this happen. I suspect maybe part of, of, of seeing these kind of falls from grace and enjoying them is because actually when we see other people's moral failures... What that does is it kind of gives us a pretty smug sense of self-satisfaction that, well, you know, maybe I'm not such a bad person after all. If this guy's doing this kind of dodgy stuff, well, I'm kind of all right. I suspect that's part of why we enjoy it. I suspect part of the reason we enjoy it as well is because uh, when we see somebody's life like this start to go down the toilet, 
it actually acts as a bit of a cautionary tale for us. Uh, we can look at the decisions that someone like this has made and we can learn from it to perhaps live a better life and not follow them down the path they've chosen to walk down. In terms of stories of fall, falls from grace, the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel 28 has got to be an all-time classic. It is really one of the, the, the biggest falls from grace that you could ever imagine. Uh, do you remember when we were introduced to King Saul uh, towards the beginning of the book? Do you remember kind of how he was described? Do you remember what he had going for him at that point? Like King Saul, when you meet him before he's king, like he's a guy who's described as kind of having won the genetic lottery, right? Uh, you imagine King Saul and you think to yourself, this guy's got Luke Thorne good looks. That's the kind of guy that King Saul is, right? Just strides through life. It takes people's breath away when he enters the room. More than that, though, uh, King Saul is a guy who has been handpicked for being the first king of God's people. What a job. What opportunities lay at his feet because of this. King Saul was one of the most powerful men in the whole world. There was literally nothing that was not within his reach. And yet, in the passage that we had read for us, his life is in the gutter. His world has fallen apart. He's on the brink of death. So how did he get there? We're going to look at, at King Saul's life and this, this sort of final few hours of his life here in chapter 28, and we're going to see what lessons we can learn from it so that by the grace of God, we don't live the same kind of life as Saul. Because the, the truth is, friends, whether you like it or not, you are more like King Saul than you think you are. I am more like King Saul than I think I am. There's nothing really that distinguishes him from us. He's just a human person given some responsibility. He has all the same weaknesses that you and I have. He faces all the same temptations that you and I have. And so we ought to read the story of King Saul so that we don't become like him, so that we don't make the same mistakes that he did. So let's take a close look at, at chapter 28 here and, and see what has led King Saul to this point of utter desperation. Uh, the context, as, as we pick up the story in chapter 28, the context in, in chapter 27, maybe you studied it in your home group this week, uh, it's a, chapter 27 is a story about David. And David has fled again. He's done another runner uh, to be safe from Saul. And he's found himself this time actually living in the territory of the Philistines, God's enemies. And somehow David and his army have kind of gotten embroiled in this scheme. And by the end of chapter 27, David and his army are kind of marching with the Philistines to war against Israel. David's in a bit of hot water there and you don't find out what happens to David until chapter 29, which we won't get to. Uh, but in chapter 28, David's story is kind of put on hold and the camera pans across to Saul and we see what's going on with Saul at this same time. So let's pick up chapter 28 uh, from verse 3. The author tells us, uh, now Samuel was dead which if, if you're an astute reader of the Bible, if you've been paying attention through this series, then that's actually not the first time that that's been mentioned to us. It was mentioned back in chapter 25. And so it's a bit strange for the author to be telling us that again. It's not immediately apparent why he's telling us that. But anyway, he goes on in verse 3, and he, he mentions there at the end that Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. These are the kind of people who, who consult with, with deceased people's spirits. They're the kind of people who wrote the horoscopes in ancient Israel, if you like. Uh, and, and we're told there that Saul had expelled those people 
from the land, which is a good thing. Credit to Saul there. Getting rid of demon worship in the land is probably one of the best things Saul ever did in his kingship. But again, we're not told why this information is being provided to us, right? So what happens? Verse 4. The Philistines assemble for battle. Here is David and the Philistine kings coming against Israel. They set up camp at Shunem, which is kind of up in Galilee in the north of Israel. Saul and all of Israel camp at Gilboa, which is just a little bit to the south. They're preparing themselves for battle. And again, no big deal, because Saul has actually fought the Philistines before, multiple times. And Saul and Israel have won battles against them before. So what's the big deal here? The big deal is chapter 27. The big deal is that now David is with the Philistines. Saul's five-star general is now fighting for the enemy. Things are starting to look kind of not so good for Saul at this point. And so verse 5, when Saul sees the Philistine army, he is afraid. Terror fills his heart. The Hebrew there is literally that his heart is trembling as Saul sees David and the Philistines start to march against him. Now, why is that? Why is Saul so scared this time? Well, verse 6. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord didn't answer him. Do you remember, uh, there's, there's something quite ironic kind of going on here. Do you remember what Saul's name means? Uh, the word Saul is, is the word in Hebrew for ask for. And so King Saul is the king that Israel asked for, literally. And so what is Saul doing? He is, he's asking God. He's inquiring of God. He's Sauling God, and God's not answering him. This is a, a problem here. There's no communication coming from God to Saul. That's what makes this whole situation so dire. Uh, God is not speaking to Saul. And it says there in verse 6, he's not speaking to him by dreams, now, you may know in various places in the Old Testament, God is said to speak to his servants in certain times and places by dreams, through visions or voices and that kind of thing. But Saul is not getting that anymore because you remember God took his spirit from Saul earlier in the book. And so now God is no longer speaking directly to Saul anymore. Saul's radio is not tuned to that frequency not by dreams, not by Urim, uh, which is kind of like the Urim, uh, the Urim and Thurim are these two stones that the priests in the nation would have. And they were kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of a magic eight ball. Uh, the, the priests would kind of roll the dice with these things. And based on, on what turned up, they would receive guidance from God about what decisions to make. And Saul's not getting any direction from the Urim anymore. You remember why? Because he killed all the priests. This is Saul's own making, this problem. He wiped them all out except one of them, Abiathar, who actually fled over to David and is now with David in the Philistine territory. So Saul's not getting any communication from God that way either. And he's also not getting any communication from the prophets, it says there. Not by dreams, not by Urim, not by prophets. And so now this is the reason why the author wanted to remind us that Samuel is dead. The prophet is dead. Now, to be fair, Saul and Samuel... They didn't have a very harmonious kind of a relationship. Saul uh, ignored and disobeyed Samuel more than he listened to him. But the point that's being made here is that God's mouthpiece on earth, the prophet, capital P, he's dead. There's no one walking around with the word of God on their lips in Israel anymore. And so despite Saul's desire to hear from God, to inquire of the Lord, God's not speaking. Saul asks and all he gets is silence. So put yourself in Saul's shoes at this point in the story. 
facing this threat, searching for some help from above, getting nothing, what would you be feeling at that point? I think there'd probably be two main kind of fears, two main pains that you would be feeling at that point. The first pain that you would be feeling uh, is the pain of being alone. You would have no one to talk to, no one to turn to, no friends, no counsellors, no prophets, no God. The pain Saul would be feeling here is the pain of not having a connection with somebody who's got his back, somebody who loves him. That would be the first pain, I think. And the second pain would be the pain of just needing some reassurance, needing somebody to stand with him and to tell him that it's all going to be okay. This is all going to work out, Saul. He doesn't have either of those two things. And so this is not looking good for Saul. This is a bad spot for him to be in. It's an especially bad spot. Do realise this. The reason why this is such a problem is because Saul is the king of Israel. For the king to find himself in this kind of a position of being completely abandoned by God, this is not good. The king of Israel was supposed to be the man who leads the nation, who goes out in battle before the people, courageously fights for them. And here, at the moment of his, the hour of his greatest need, God is nowhere to be found. God has washed his hands of Saul. There is no one to comfort him, no one to reassure him. This is grim. But actually, this is, this is not the lowest point Saul is going to hit. Let's keep looking at what Saul does next. Uh, let's read verse 7. Verse 7, Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There's one in Endor, they said. And Saul said, Isn't that where the Ewoks live? And they all said, Yes. No. No, witchcraft is what Saul is talking about, going and seeing a medium. And Saul knew that that was off limits for God's people. Remember, Saul was the one who'd expelled them. Saul was the one who had issued the decree, no more of this in Israel. Saul knew that he was breaking God's law at this point. God had been very clear with his people about not engaging with the occult. God had given them law after law after law. And I'm going to read you a few of them because I want you to have a sense of the seriousness of what Saul is doing here. This is not a, a small thing that, that Saul has decided to do. Now, let me read you a few, a few laws from Leviticus chapter 20. This is God who says, I will set my face against anyone who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute themselves by following them. I will cut them off from their people. Bit later in the chapter. A man or a woman who is a medium or spiritist among you must be put to death. You are to stone them. Their blood is on their hands. God does not get more serious than this. This is how much God hates this kind of a practice. A little bit uh, earlier in the Bible, uh, later rather, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God says this, Let no one be found among you who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. The king of Israel, detestable to the Lord. This is the desperation that Saul is feeling at this point, that he is willing to resort to the thing that God has expressly forbidden. And, and, and it's, it's confusing and it's kind of ironic, isn't it? 
Saul deciding that this is what he wants to do in his, his moment of need. When he needs God the most, what is he going to do? To reach out to the God who he never wanted to have anything to do with in the first place. He's going to disobey that God's laws and go and seek a medium to raise a dead prophet who he didn't want to have anything to do with in the first place when he was alive anyway to try and get some guidance. Like Saul, is, he's such a conflicted man here, isn't he? He's a man in contradiction at this point. His world is just starting to unravel. I think what, what makes this so tragic, this decision that Saul's making here, is that Saul is supposed to be, the king of Israel is supposed to be the model Israelite. He is the one who is supposed to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, who the people look to as a model of godliness. And yet Saul's heart is so calloused at this point. He is so desensitized to his own sin that he doesn't even recognize the wickedness of what he's doing. And so he, he makes this plan where he disguises himself and in the dead of night he heads out to visit this medium in Endor. And I, I just want to kind of pause the story in, of the chapter at this point and deal with something that kind of head on is kind of the elephant in the room. Uh, if you've never realized this or perhaps you've kind of always danced around the issue, I'm going to try and tackle it head on. And, and the issue is this, that the Bible is unashamed and unapologetic talking about the reality of a spiritual dimension to life. The Bible is, is not embarrassed to talk about angels and demons and those kinds of realities. The world that we live in, as described by, by the Bible, is a supernatural world. There's no getting around that. Uh, and so let me say that any faith, any Christian faith that is not supernatural, is not Christian faith. Now, I reckon that most people in, in our world, uh, most people that you work with, that you study with, most people in your family are probably pretty happy to dismiss the supernatural as kind of primitive. You know? That's what people in the past thought before, they, before we had science. Uh, most people, I reckon, are pretty happy to dismiss people who believe in that stuff as gullible. And look, that, m that may be the case. There may be people who, who practice the occult who are just being taken for a ride. But it, if we are going to be people who believe that this is the word of God and that every word of it is true and accurate, then we have to be people who believe this, who, who agree that there is a spiritual dimension to life. Now, to be clear, God has, God has said time and time again in his word that although that spiritual dimension exists, although there are angels and demons and whatever else, we are not to go looking for a connection to it, just to be clear about that. Because the, the thing about all those kind of occult practices which seek to engage with that spiritual dimension, whether they be horoscopes, whether they be tarot cards, whether they be palm readings, crystals, seances, Ouija boards, whatever it is, the thing that all of those practices have in common is that they are trying to offer you something. They're trying to offer you control over something that should be out of your control. They're trying to offer you knowledge about something of which you are not supposed to have knowledge. That's what makes these things so detestable to God because you want to know the future, but you're not interested in knowing the God who controls the future. All of those occult practices, they're really ways of bypassing God, of not having to deal with God, to come to him by faith and, and to receive what he is willing to give you. That's why these things are so detestable. 
Now, I, as I kind of talk about this, I don't know whether anybody in this room uh, is even the least bit interested or connected to any kind of mediums or psychics or any of that kind of stuff. It may be not an issue for anybody in this room, but I'll tell you what I do know. I know that in Wollongong, there are a lot of people who are. You know how I know that? Because if you walk down Crown Street Mall, you can barely walk 50 metres without finding a shop somewhere that will offer to connect you to some spiritual realm that will read your palm, that will provide some sort of healing crystal for you. It's everywhere in Wollongong. As I was doing some research for this sermon, I came across uh, a medium in Wollongong who's, you know, charges by the hour. You can go and make an appointment with her. This is how she advertises her services. I'll read it to you. This is her slogan. She says... I see lost loved ones, future lovers, and babies. That's what she's offering you. Come meet with me, and I can connect you to somebody that you love who's dead. Come meet with me, and I can tell you who you'll marry. Come meet with me, and I can tell you whether you'll have children and what they'll be. Can you, can you understand? We can make fun of this. We ought to make fun of this. But can you understand the appeal of an offer like that? If you are going through a crisis in life, if you are under stress and under pressure, and someone comes along and says to you, I can connect you to somebody that you love who has died, and you don't have to feel alone anymore. They, they can be present and they can comfort you. Would you want that? If you're going through a crisis and somebody says to you, I can tell you how this turns out. I can give you guidance, tell you what decisions to make to avoid the pitfall so that this all turns out well for you. Would you want that? It's a real temptation, friends. It's a real temptation for Christians. We are not immune to this. Do you know that in Italy, in you know, the heartland of Roman Catholicism, it's said that there are more mediums in that country than there are Catholic priests. It's a real temptation for Christians. It's a real temptation for all people to engage in this stuff. And it's a temptation that Saul has fallen headlong into. He is desperate for the presence of God, for connection to a God who he cannot reach anymore. And he's desperate for a word of reassurance. And so he hatches this plan. So back to the story, we don't actually get the details of how this ceremony, whatever it is, happens. And I'm quite thankful that God didn't choose to include that in the Bible for us because I'm sure that some people would be tempted to kind of emulate it and see what we could conjure up. God doesn't tell us, but what he does tell us is that somehow at this one point in history, a man comes back from the dead as some kind of a ghost. Samuel appears to Saul and he brings a word for him. But it's not the word of reassurance that Saul has been looking for. No, it's a word of judgment. So let's have a read again uh, in the, the passage from verse 16. Verse 16, Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbours, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Samuel's word for Saul here is the, the exact same thing that he told him when he was alive back in chapter 15, that the kingdom has been taken from him because of his disobedience and given to David. There's nothing new in Saul's word, Samuel's word for Saul except for one thing. One tidbit of information that within 24 hours, Saul and his sons 
they'll be joining Samuel in the place of the dead. That is not a message of comfort and reassurance for Saul in the midst of this crisis. It's just a word of coming judgment. So the question is, what does Saul do with that information? With the knowledge that tomorrow he's going to meet his end, what does he do with it? Does he repent? Does he, does he make a, a cry for mercy? I wonder, friends, what would you do with that information? If you knew that within 24 hours you were going to meet your maker, what would you do with that information? Would you be ready? Would you get ready? Of course, we, we are never going to know that information. We are never going to know uh, when our final breath is going to be. But we do know that there will be a final breath for each of us, don't we? We know that we will die once, face judgment, meet our maker. The question is, will we be ready for that? What does Saul do with this information? He actually does nothing with it. There's, there's not a hint of repentance for him here. There's no pleading for mercy. Look at verse 20. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. This once mighty king is now weak and helpless. The once tall and impressive looking man now lays full length on the ground in humility. This is exactly actually what Hannah prayed back at the beginning of the book in chapter 2. Do you remember that? That great reversal that she talked about, how the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. He sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Saul has been humbled. And the story ends for us there with a very sad banquet, uh, with Saul obeying the direction of a witch. She feeds him a meal that's fit for a king. The trouble is it's going to be eaten by a man who's not fit to be king. And I can't help but think of the Apostle Paul at this point. Paul who says that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Here is Saul eating and drinking. And within 24 hours, he's going to have fallen on his sword. What a sad picture this is. Do understand that at this point, Saul is a man who has been completely forsaken by God. It's a spectacular fall from grace, isn't it? The highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He starts with such promise, but as he begins to ignore and to disobey the word of God, as he begins to shut God out of his life, little by little, Saul's whole life eventually goes off the rails. So what do you do with this story in your Bible? Why, why has God given us 1 Samuel 28? What does he want to teach us with this story? I want to suggest to you that, that this chapter of the Bible, and in, indeed Saul's whole life really, has one big lesson to teach us. One lesson, and I, I just want to kind of dwell on this lesson for the rest of the time that I've got this evening. And the lesson I think is this, that the way God judges sin is by leaving people alone. The way God judges sin is by leaving people alone. I think that most people assume that the way God judges sin is kind of by pouring out punishment on people. 
You know, like God is kind of watching on your life, waiting for you to slip up so that he can kind of have a bit of a gotcha moment and that he can punish you for it. You know, like God is a, a kind of a divine policeman who's looking on, waiting to write you an infraction for the smallest offence. I think that's how most people think God actually pours out his judgment. But Saul's life shows us that that's not the main way God does it. That actually the main way God judges is by leaving people alone. In the words of Romans chapter 1, God gives people over to their sin. That is how God judges. He takes the handbrake off in your life and he lets you roll downhill, accelerating and accelerating to your ruin. Saul shows us actually that, that when we say to God, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Just get out of my life, God. I'm not interested. God's answer to that is okay. He gives you to you. He leaves you alone. And I reckon that if, if you're a Christian here tonight, I reckon that you have actually had a taste of that. I think as Christians, we do get a taste of God's judgment in this sense, in this life. Maybe uh, you've had experiences in your life where God has felt very distant from you. And at some point, after that has gone on for some length of time, as you're able to, to examine your life, to, to look back on why that might have been the case, why God was nowhere to be found for you. Perhaps the insight of a close friend who speaks into your life, you realise that there's been an area of sin in your life that you have been holding on to, that you've been trying to keep from God. And actually what's been happening is God has been saying to you, you can have your sin, but you can't have me. That's part of the way I think we experience the judgment of God like this. Maybe you've come at it from a different angle. Maybe you have had seasons in your life, long seasons, seasons that have lasted for years or decades even, where, where you have not been uh, reading and meditating on the Word of God. Maybe you've been uh, withdrawn from the fellowship of God's people. You've removed yourself from the teaching of God's Word. You, you've disconnected from a home group where you're being uh, fed the Word of God. And, and at this point, God just feels so so distant to you, so not there in your life. There's no joy in your obedience. There's no thankfulness. You're just kind of going through the motions. Your prayers just feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling and falling back down onto you. Do you know that happens so often to Christians? People ignore or disregard God and then they turn around and complain that God feels distant to them. Well, of course he does. Because God has given you to you. You've chosen to live life without God and now you're experiencing, of it, experiencing it. Can I say, if you are in that situation tonight, you're not alone. If you, if you ever find yourself in that situation even, do you know there's, there's, there's one thing and one thing only that you have to do? You have to run into the arms of the Lord Jesus. Because you, you know that... Jesus doesn't sit on a throne of grace for nothing. Jesus is not stingy with, with re-establishing relationship with you, with forgiving you. All you have to do is come to him and do the one thing that Saul didn't do. You have to repent, to confess your sin. You have to choose Jesus over anything else. And he will be pleased to come back into fellowship with you. Do you know, it, when we live like that, when we shut God out of our lives, it, it is bad for us in so many ways. But do you know, we, when we do that, what we forfeit are some of the sweetest mercies and, and some of the sweetest grace God has got to offer to us. When we don't want God to speak into our lives, we miss out on words where God says, do you know, I love you 
even when you're at your worst. You don't get that if you don't get God in your life. When you, when you shut God out, you miss God saying to you, I will forgive you even for this, even though you've broken my heart, I'll still forgive you. You don't get that if you shut God out of your life. If you silence God, what ends up happening is you, you reap what you sow. You do not get the grace of God saying to you, you know, friend, I am in control of your life. I'm in control of your circumstances. Even when it feels like things are drastically out of control and you feel anxious, I'm here for you. You miss out on God saying, you know, I've got your back as you step out in faith here. If you silence God, then what happens is you get left alone in this universe with no one to comfort you and no one to reassure you. And that is a torment of an experience. But you know that Saul's tragic fall from grace here, it actually shows us uh, what the ultimate experience of God's judgment is going to be like. Because Saul, as he is abandoned by God here, he is a picture for us of what hell is like. Because to be abandoned by God, that is hell. That is the hell that the Bible speaks of. Abandonment by God. Now, we may, we may get small tastes of that in our life for seasons or moments of time, of what it's like to be out of God's presence, but none of us will ever experience the fullness of that. No one will ever experience the fullness of that until they experience the unending reality of hell. Uh, an Australian evangelist named John Chapman wrote a book a few years ago called A Fresh Start, many years ago now. And he wrote a, a kind of an imaginary description of what it might be like to wake up and to find yourself in hell. And I want to read that description for you now. He had never felt such aloneness before. Where is my wife? He choked. Only that awful echo, not here, your wife is not here. He tried to piece it all together, but the, the darkness was too thick. Once in a while, he, he thought he could see a blurred figure or hear an anguished moan. He remembered the pain, those last moments of terror, but it was nothing compared to the feelings that were creeping into his awareness now. Again, he cried, where is my wife? Your wife is not here. Where are my children? Your children are not here. He started to grope around in the darkness, but all was blindness. My God, he howled again. Let me feel the presence of one single human being. My God. He hadn't said those words in such a long time. My God. And now they seemed so hollow. Terror was welling up inside him. He felt like a small child being threatened by deep darkness. No candles anywhere, no light anywhere, no love anywhere. Where is my wife? He screamed. Your wife is not here. Where are my children? He screamed. Your children are not here. Then the greatest fear of all came to his mind. He was terrified to ask, but he knew he would have to. His whole body trembled as he pursed his lips and wailed into the nebulous night. Where, oh where is God? As the deepest of all darkness closed in on his soul for all eternity, he heard that hideous echo whispering the most horrifying of judgments. God is not here. 
Friends, we are not playing games. Hell is real and it does not need to have you in it. Because you see, there was another king that came after Saul. Another king who experienced the abandonment of God, just like Saul did, but not because of his disobedience, but rather because of his perfect obedience. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he went to the cross and he suffered the judgment of God, complete abandonment by God, the judgment that you and I deserve so that we wouldn't have to experience it. As he hung there on that cross, his heavenly father, for the first time in all eternity, turned his face away from him. What does Jesus say as he hangs on that cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned so that you don't have to experience that. And more than that, friends, do you know what else? Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus came back from the dead, not as a ghost, not as something that a medium pulled up from the grave, but as a living, breathing human being, the resurrected King of Kings. And Jesus lives to come to you today and to bring to you his comfort and his presence. What does Jesus say, his final words in in Matthew's gospel? Surely I am with you. Always, to the very end of the age. He is your everlasting comfort. And what else Jesus brings to you? He brings you a word of assurance, not a word of war and judgment that Saul got, but a word of peace, a word of forgiveness. Your eternity secure, sins forgiven, conscience cleansed, life with God forevermore. Christ is your comfort. Christ is your reassurance. You know, Saul's life and death are here for us, I think, in the Bible as a warning that the way God judges people is by leaving them alone. But Jesus' death and life are here in the Bible for us to teach us that we never need to hear those chilling words, God is not here. You never need to hear those words pronounced over your life, God is not here. We need not suffer like Saul. So let me urge you, with, with as, I use that word literally, with as much urgency as I can, not to keep God out of your life. Do not keep him at arm's length. Do not silence him in your life because the day will come when he will give you what you want. He will leave you alone. So won't you take the hand of the Saviour today and avoid that? awful eternity let me pray for us Lord Jesus we thank you for going to the cross for us and for experiencing complete abandonment the abandonment that we deserve for choosing sin instead of you. Thank you, Jesus, that in your death and your resurrection, there is comfort for us, your presence with us forevermore, and reassurance of our future secured. Thank you that 
because of you, we never need to hear those words spoken over our life. God is not here. Please would you help us to trust in you. Amen.